0: So tonight, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 4, as Cody just read. We're going to be looking at tools used by God's enemies. We'll see how all these, in, how all these weapons are summed up as opposition. So let's think about opposition. What does that look like? It's something that can hit us from a hundred different directions. Each person that's pursuing a task, anybody trying to do anything, can and they will have opposition. It can look different from case by case, but no matter what, it's just difficulty, Normally, we're going to avoid difficulty, right? It's a natural thing. We do it, we do it without even thinking. You know, if we, go, if we walk from one place to the other, we're going to take the shortest route. If we're in Winn-Dixie, in the checkout line, we're not going to get in the one that's got five people in it. We're going to go to the one that's open. And our GPS, we're going to go the fastest and shortest route. And if y'all are like me, it's way more fun to eat ice cream and watch TV than go for a jog. <laughs> we're going to always take that path of least resistance. Because it's our natural tendency, we tend to look at opposition and and this difficulty, we tend to look at it as something bad, something that should be avoided. And although something might be difficulty, it might be tiring or even unnerving, there's a lot of good things that can come with going through a struggle. God consistently uses the opposition that that his people faces to grow their dependence on him and to make them more like himself. We see this in James. It's an often, it's a, it's a passage we always go to for trials. In um, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So think about this. That very thing that we're trying to avoid might be placed specifically there by God for us to walk through James says to count it as joy not happy because we have this difficulty but we're rejoicing in the faithfulness of God and his working in our lives rarely is something that's worth doing going to come easy for us any work that we do for God is going to be met with opposition this is right where we find Israel here in this passage today they're finally starting to rebuild the wall and remember the context here it's been pretty smooth sailing so far Everyone was working well together They're making progress But now it was time for the rubber to meet the road And they were about to face opposition I don't think Nehemiah was Was so naive that he didn't think That they would have any Any pushback, any opposition from the enemies Because they wanted Israel to stay weak They wanted to have their, their Political powers be over them They didn't want Israel being a threat And it's the same with us. When we receive opposition, trying to follow after God or do something for Him, we shouldn't be shocked when we get opposition either. Isn't it crazy how we tend to expect everything to go easy? We set out to do something. And it's all, it's all fun, we're all happy until we hit that first snag, that first set of difficulties, that first speed bump in the road, and they're like, why in the world did we do this? Whose idea was it to even start this? I do this with with projects I do, with even at my job sometimes, something that looks like it's going to take 30 minutes, an hour, and it turns into be an all-day project. And then you look back, is it really something that was being overly difficult, or did I just have unrealistic expectations thinking everything was just going to go perfectly easy? But we can do this in our Christian life as well. We'll hear a sermon on Sunday. We'll read a book that motivates us in an area to grow. We'll, In our personal devotions, we'll have a truth that we want to share to somebody we're all excited, right, until we, we start sharing that. And then we start taking action on that. And then what happens? We get pushback. Someone calls us out for trying. Someone says that we can't do it. Someone might even reject the gospel when we share it with them. They might even question your faith. You might take a stand on a principle and then see that nobody stands with you. You might even get pushback from people that you thought would stand with you. But we can't be shocked when this happens we see this from the from our study in the book of john that we've been doing in john chapter 15 this is jesus saying this if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you don't be surprised by opposition Think of Jesus. Think of who he he was. He was perfect in every way. He He was giving. He was loving. He was serving. Full of compassion. And what did they do with him? They killed him. How can Christ followers expect anything? How can we expect anything easy? When what we're striving to be, our perfect example, he faced opposition nonstop. Opposition can mean that we're on the right track. Just because something's hard doesn't mean it's wrong. Following God won't always be easy, but we do have that reward, that that peace of knowing that we're doing God's will. Working to accomplish God's will will most certainly come with hardships. But in the midst of all this, we have to remember that he is worthy. Tonight we're going to look at the opposition that the Israelites face and how they were able to overcome that and continue on in God's work. So we're going to see three weapons used by God's enemy. The first is ridicule. We'll start in verse 1. And here we see Sambalat becoming enraged over the work being started. And through his anger he begins to ridicule and mock them. It says, Now it came about that when Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. So this word for furious comes from the idea of that red hot, that burning anger. And then the word very angry comes from the side of anger that's upset and sorrowful. So he had this burning, sorrowful anger and wanted to take it out on them in revenge. This attack and all these weapons that he used, they come from a heart of bitterness against the Lord, against the Lord's people and his work. He was motivated by hatred for them and then by his own political agenda. He mocks them in the form of asking these questions here. These aren't questions that he was actually wanting an answer for. They were, it was more of a, of a public mockery. He was asking these questions to make them look bad publicly and to also make them feel bad about themselves. <clears throat> so verse 2. It says, He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? So there's six different ways that he ridicules the people. And the first one is that he ridicules the people himself. He starts the whole thing off by saying, calling them feeble Jews. He was laughing at how weak the Jews were, putting them down. And then at the same time, he was pushing himself over them. But let's think about this. Was this a lie? Was this a false claim? Was he making this up? Absolutely not. They were feeble. Their city lay in ruin. They had holes in their walls. They were totally vulnerable to their enemies. And this cut at the Jews. It was because it was true. That's exactly how we are today. When facing ridicule, when facing shaming, it hurts the most when we know what they're saying has some weight to it. You know, if someone's making fun of us for something that's totally crazy, that's not associated with us, it's just kind of annoying. But it hurts when they hit that sore spot. Remember, God had disciplined them down to this weakness. And he did that so he could show his strength. Pastor Cody talked about that in chapter one. Their frailty, their feebleness here as a city and as a nation was a direct result of their sin. They'd been a strong nation. They'd had the blessings of God. They'd had peace and prosperity and victory. They had the Lord's presence. They had everything. But as a nation, they had turned their back on God. They took the blessings that he had given them and followed after them instead of after God. And because of this, God judged them. He wiped them out and many of the Israelites were taken into captivity. This was when, why Nehemiah was away to begin with. Their frailty and their feebleness were a direct consequence of their sin. Israel had been totally defeated and now they're just trying to get back up on their feet. But Sambalot was, was pointing out their past failures He was pointing out their shortcomings, but it was all true. They had failed God. They'd made mistakes, and they were weak. But that didn't change that God was calling them to do his work. He was calling Israel back to himself and to bring restoration not just to their walls, but to their God. So, how does this apply to us today? We can't let our past failures cause us to quit pursuing God. We might get ridiculed. We might be called a hypocrite. We might be told by the world that we're just gonna fail again. But we have to remember that God's called us to himself. He has a plan for each and every one of his children to be restored, to be made new. This process of sanctification and just like these walls, God wants to build you up. Don't let the ridicule of your past, don't let your weaknesses and your failures stop you from pursuing God now and in the future. Secondly, he questions their abilities. So we've already seen that this was a diverse crowd of people that was working on the wall. They weren't engineers, masons, and carpenters. They were priests, perfume makers, gold makers. Definitely not anybody that was qualified on paper to do this, this great task. And again, Sambal was pointing out what was painfully obvious to them. They knew this, but they didn't let that stop them. They weren't trusting in their own abilities. They were trusting in the God that had called them to do this work. So do you see the pattern here? This is is God growing them. They had been on top. They'd lost sight of what had gotten them there. And now God is teaching them faith. Not to trust in themselves and their own abilities, but to trust in God. We can clearly see that God is doing much more than restoring this wall. He's restoring their faith. And church... May we never lose thankfulness for God's grace in working in our lives like this. So Sanballat had attacked the people. He'd attacked their abilities. But the next point of attack was their faith, their religion. So sacrifices were mo- one of the most distinctive aspects of the Jews. It was, it's what set them apart. And they had gotten away from this. He was mocking their faith. He was mocking their distinctives. But ultimately, he was mocking their God asking if they could just make a sacrifice to God and this wall would magically be rebuilt, or if somehow, by spiritual means, they could complete this physical task. He's once again pointing out the shortcomings of the Jews. He's taking their past mistakes and rubbing it in their face. He's using what they'd fallen down to as a reason of what they couldn't become again. Don't we see this a lot today? People mocking prayer. Prayer is seen as something that's for the weak somebody that needs a crutch or somebody that just doesn't actually want to do anything but as we see throughout Nehemiah prayer was just as important to him as the actual work of building the wall and we should be the same way the fourth thing is he questioned their ability to finish he's scoffing at can they even do it in a day Israel knew that this was a huge task it wouldn't come easy Sambala is he's calling into question their endurance and their will to finish this task have you ever had someone do this to you when you're in the middle of something or starting something out and you're working your very hardest and somebody that's not even doing anything comes in and questions you or tells you it's going to be really hard that's really encouraging isn't it remember Nehemiah had put a lot of preparation into this he knew it wasn't going to come easy But samuel he was trying to get them off course. He was discouraging them so they wouldn't be able to finish it. So moving away from the people now, he draws their attention to the materials they were trying to use. He claimed that they were going to be using faulty materials that they wouldn't hold up. This attack isn't even accurate, but still he's relentless in this scoffing rage. He's doing anything he can to pick at them to get them to stop. He did not want this wall to be built. And we see there's was, there was plenty of good materials left to build this wall. We've seen that Sambal attacked the people, their abilities, their faith, their ability to finish, and now the materials. But there's one more thing. We'll read verse, verse 3. It says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. So now another leader is chiming in, questioning their finished product, claiming that it's just a waste of time, because even if they do get it built, we don't even need to take our army through it. A fox is going to jump on it, and it's going to fall down. Obviously, it's a ridiculous claim. It didn't even make sense, but it didn't stop them from saying it. We see through all six of these points of attack that they used sensitive truths, they used partial truths, and they used flat-out lies. The enemies of God's people wanted nothing more than them just to stop. They didn't care about the facts, the truth, the accuracy of what they were saying. They just wanted to have their dominance over them. Now let's see what this looks like for us today. It's easy for us to, to go in through these Old Testament passages and, and almost kind of dehumanize them. We strip away the personalization, the emotions from these people, and we just see as words, not people. People. What does ridicule for following God look like for us in 2019 in Callahan? Could it be a spouse or a friend, someone that knows you well, that sees your faults and doesn't really think that you're going to follow through with what you're setting out to do for God? Is it someone that you've grown up with, somebody that knows your past failures and your past mistakes and uses those as a reason against you to why you can't be serious about following God now? Is it being afraid to take a spiritual stand for something that you believe in? Maybe share your beliefs with with a family member that's not a believer. But we're afraid of being labeled. We don't want an uncomfortable confrontation and we don't want to damage that relationship. We're afraid how it's going to affect us in the end. Maybe it's a non-believing coworker that whenever we share truth with, they're just going to blaspheme us. They're going to blaspheme God and his word They're going to mock you. The possibilities are endless of how we can be opposed when we're trying to live for God. But opposition does not mean that we're doing something wrong. The scriptures are clear that nothing that we're going to do for God is going to come easy. But people today, we're scared of ridicule. We're worried about the perception that we put off and what other people might think. Not even what what they will do, but just the possibility of what they might do our reputation around town and to our families, that means everything to us and we don't want to damage that. And let's be honest, it's just easier to keep our head down and to not draw any attention or make any commotion and we let it stop us. Look at your life, look at the lives of the people around you. It's easy to see how people's perception of us will change our, our decisions. But look at what Nehemiah did. Look at his response to this fierce and public ridicule that was facing them. Nehemiah prayed. He didn't argue back with all the points that they had made, whether they were right or wrong. He didn't march out there and go try to beat the guy up. He didn't go before the people of Israel and say, what are we going to do? He went to God. Imagine how much different our lives would look if we did the same thing. If when faced with with any kind of trial in our life, any kind of opposition, any kind of difficulty, if we go to God first, acknowledge His sovereignty, His control, and His leadership in our lives, and then filter our actions through that, how much different would our lives look? Let's read His prayer here in verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O our God, how we are despised, return their reproach on their own heads, and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity, and let their sin be blotted out, let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Nehemiah here is pouring his heart out to God. He's desperate. This is similar to the imprecatory psalms that we studied earlier this year. Nehemiah begs for God's attention to their situation. He's asking God to turn it against them and to have no mercy on them because they're hindering the Lord's work. I don't think Nehemiah took these attacks personally. I think he saw the situation for what it was as much bigger than him. He saw the Lord's character, the Lord's holiness, and his work as what was being attacked. Nehemiah wasn't seeking to be an instrument of God's judgment in this either. He wasn't trying to go and get revenge for him. It was a prayer for God's righteousness to prevail, for his holiness to have the victory and for sin to be eradicated. So after this, this short prayer comes this, this awesome phrase, and this is, this is my favorite part of the whole passage. It says, so we built the wall. They didn't let it stop them. They gave it to God, and they continued on with their work. The same should be for us. When we're faced with opposition, when we're faced with ridicule, we need to give it to God. We need to see what it truly is. It's an attack on him and what he's trying to do. We need to give it to Him. Let Him take care of the outcome and we need to continue on our work for Him. Because we only have control over ourselves and our own actions. Let us see God's work, let us see our pursuit of Him as something far more valuable than our convenience and our comfort. So the first weapon of opposition was ridicule. There's two more but they're short so just stick with me. So... The second one is intimidation. Verses seven and eight. It says Now when Sambal, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry, and all them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. Their ridicule hadn't stopped them. And just like Brock pointed out in his message, when we look at where these enemies are, they were totally surrounded. And all these, these rulers, they didn't want them to rise back up. They wanted them to stay beat down, to stay weak. They were like, shark, they were like sharks to blood and conspiring against them. All four of these nations, they would banded together for one sole purpose, and that was to wipe out Israel. They were wanting to go in and kill them once and for all. I kind of wonder if Nehemiah was, was expecting this much opposition to what he had set out to do. He'd come so far, right? He'd sourced all the materials. He'd made the journey. He'd prepared, made plans. He'd motivated the people. They'd worked tirelessly on this. And now they're in no position to fight back. And these guys are ready to pounce on them. Could you imagine being in their shoes? They'd have, you'd be scared, right? There's no way you couldn't be. Look at what the enemies are saying in verse 11. It says, our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them kill them, and put a stop to the work. Now, is it really any different for God's church today? In some cases, yes, but in a lot of ways, it's no. God's work still faces intimidation. There's people who want nothing more than to see Christians stop, the Bible thrown out, and the church disbanded. It's a real threat. It's in the form of articles, of media, it's in politics. It's in special interest. It's in atheism, evolution, and more than anything, it's just the, this enlightened postmodern society that we live in. There's a hatred for God, and it's, just noth- it's nothing but a push to discount, disprove, and discredit anything that points to him. And the reason why, if they can remove the creator from the situation, they remove their accountability to him, and they can go on and be gods of their own lives. We should be broken for these people. Now here in America, we don't have to face any kind of physical persecution, but there's a lot of people in this world, a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ, that that's their reality. You know, some some places Christianity is illegal, some places it's not, but it's discouraged to the point where you're outcast if you do believe. But that intimidation doesn't stop those people, because they value their God, they value His work in their lives more than they value their lives themselves. This was true with Nehemiah. And I pray that it would be true with us. So look again what he does in response. Here in verse 9. It says, but we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. It says this time that they all prayed. They took it to God again. They realized the obvious. They were weak. They were vulnerable. And there was no way that they could handle this situation. They had to have God come through for them. But after that prayer, they took action again. They didn't go out there and attack them. They didn't do anything in their own power to try to fix the situation. All they did, they set up a watch. They set up a guard. It says later in the chapter that they they were working. They were carrying their tools and working with one hand while they carried their weapons in the other. They were prepared for the worst, but they didn't let it slow them down on their main goal. They knew that this danger that they were facing, that was the the whole reason why they had to get this wall built. Again, in the New Testament church today, we tend to see opposition, we tend to see struggling as something we should avoid. We imagine ourselves in this situation and everything inside of us just wants to get away from it. God wanted them to go through this. Not so that they could feel accomplished and victorious over their enemies, but so that God could show himself faithful to these people church family we must be prepared to fight off opposition to God's work sadly I don't I think there's a lot of Christians today that are unprepared and untrained for these oppositions in their lives I can't think about spiritual warfare without thinking of the picture Paul gives us in Ephesians 6 of the the armor of God that's listed as the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace the shield of faith the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit all of those come by God's Word we must be in the Word of God that's how God works in us that's how he prepares us and that's how we're able to stand through these trials through all that the opposition the ridicule and the intimidation we have to look to God in his word yet so often we're looking for answers in every direction but that. Friends, if we aren't focused on this, if we're not prepared, just like these Israelites were prepared, what makes us think that we're going to be able to stand against our opposition and our spiritual warfare? So after seeing the first two weapons of opposition, ridicule and intimidation, we're going to look at the third, which is discouragement. Now when I see this here, I don't really see it as a as a specific attack, but more of a result of the first two. But note here that Israel they'd been doing everything right. They'd faced this opposition well. They've been going to God first. They've been asking him to fight for them, and they've been continuing on in what they were supposed to do. But they still faced discouragement. Let's read verse ten. It says thus in Judah it was said, and this is the Israelites talking, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Isn't this a contrast from what we saw in verse six? They're actually starting to say what the enemy was saying to them. As time had gone on, the work had become difficult. They were tired, and they were scared. But the task wasn't finished, and the enemy was still outside. Israel had now come to the realization that they could not do this on their own. And as hard of a conclusion that was for them to get to, it was true. They weren't able to do it in themselves. They had to have God come through for them. And as we're going to see through the rest of this study, God didn't immediately resolve their issue. They had to deal with a lot of difficulties. But again, let's take a step back and see what the Lord is doing here. God's still growing their dependence on him. It's hard for us to grasp how such a horrible situation can really be for the best. But it's all about having that that God-first, that eternal perspective outlook on our lives, knowing that God's going to do all things for his glory and our ultimate good. That's even if it's not for our immediate good. Even if we go through hardships and they never get resolved the way we think they should be or the way that we want them to come out, If it draws us to closer to God, if it draws us closer to God, that's far greater than any comfort and convenience that we could have wanted. So let me ask you a question. How do you deal with discouragement? Discouragement's going to happen when we're serving the Lord. It's a natural human response to difficulty. We may pray and pray for deliverance for something. We may pray for the salvation of a loved one. We may pour ourselves into a ministry. And we see little to no movement in this and we become discouraged. We could be praying, fighting a sin, wrestling with a sin and fail and that's discouraging. Our response should be the same as the Israelites in this passage, to take it to God in prayer. The goal in our life shouldn't be to avoid difficulty, to avoid opposition because if that's the goal, we're never going to be able to follow after God. If you're following God, discouragement is going to happen. What matters the most is what we do with it. How we handle this opposition. Trust in the Lord. Take it to Him in prayer. And leave it there while we continue on. And we can do this because as a church we have the ultimate hope. That ultimate victory promised to us. We have salvation in Christ. And this is what can drive us through these difficult and these trying times. It's because of the gospel, right? It's because of Christ's resurrection. How He's conquered death. And in conquering death, he's conquered life in the same breath. Because no matter what can happen to us in this life, if the very worst thing that happens to us is that we die and go to be with God, that's ultimately the best for us. So no matter what happens, what trials we go through, what difficulties we face, we know that God's always going to be with us and that he will do it for his ultimate glory and his good. So what can we take away from this? This story of a man leading these people to build a wall 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world. I'm just, I'm amazed by the transcendence of scripture and how it can still apply to our lives today. That's because people are people and God is still God. But first let's look at what we can learn about God here. What can we see about his character? First and foremost, we see God as a redeemer and a restorer. We see him as gracious to his people. We see him as a keeper of his covenants. We see him as a shelter to run to in times of opposition, as a provider of strength for his people to continue the work. And we see him as absolutely sovereign and in control to accomplish his will, even when it looks like to us that there's no hope. How great is our God, and then how gracious is he that he calls us up to himself and wants to build us up and make us into what he wants us to be. Let's also see how God's working in their lives. And we've touched on this a little bit. But as Israel was working on the wall, and as we're working for God, God's working in our hearts at the same time. God was showing them their need of Him, their dependence on Him, how it wasn't enough for their own motivation, their own strengths to accomplish this task. Because that eventually is going to run out. It's going to run dry, and it ran dry on them. Only through God were they able to succeed. God's wanting to restore this wall. But more than anything, he's wanting to restore Israel to himself. But as far as action and application, what can we grow in our actions to apply this in our lives? I think first of all, we need to take our difficulties to God first. If we see anything about Nehemiah in this study, we see that he was a man of prayer. He knew that God had all the answers and that God's ways were best. And all he wanted to do was just be brought into alignment with God's plan. And this had a top-down effect on Israel. It started with Nehemiah and went to the builders. You know, we struggle with, when we come up with a difficulty, we struggle with either trying to take it on ourselves or just completely rolling over and giving up. Both of these things are the same. It's us comparing our struggles, our difficulties, to our own strength. We need to be looking at God. We need to be looking at his strength and what he's called us to do. You know, if we're truly seeking after God, there's nobody better to lead us than God himself. Don't trust your own strength. The second thing is to continue in God's work, even in spite of opposition. All these weapons used against Israel, all the attacks on the church today are there for the same reason. They're to get us off track. That's all these attacks were for. Their enemies, just plain and simple, wanted them to stop building that wall. Nothing is going to render us more useless in our service for God than a life that's full of distractions, something that's pulling us off target and keeping us off focused. My favorite phrase in this whole passage was when it said, so we built the wall. They were confident in their God. They were confident in, their, in His calling, that they weren't focused on what they were facing, but what God had called them to do. The same's for us today. We can't let ridicule, pushback, or even the thoughts of those things from the world stop us. Jesus himself said that this is going to happen. We have to be on guard and be prepared. Just like the Israelites were expecting these attacks, but still working for God's kingdom. And the third thing is don't let discouragement cause you to stop. We're going to grow tired, we're going to grow weary we're still human and it's unrealistic for us to think that we're never going to have discouragement in our lives but what can pull us through even these hardest of times is having that hope rooted in God that ultimate promise of victory that hope of a fellowship with God forever that doesn't start after we die that starts right now that when we see that and that we weigh it against our current trials we see that as more valuable we see that as worth it I'd like to close just with a passage here in in, um, 2 Corinthians. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. My prayer for us as a church is that we wouldn't be avoiding opposition, that we would take our hardships to God, that we would continue on in our work even through our discouragement because we have the ultimate victory in Christ. Let's pray.